Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. If you have a Bible or a Bible on your phone, go with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is where we will be at for the majority of our time this morning. Uh, If you are just joining us for the first time this Sunday, uh, like I said, welcome. Uh, For you to know, we started a series last Sunday where we are just looking in depth at the book of Matthew in the Bible. Uh, If you weren't here for that last Sunday, it it might be worth going back at some point and listening to the teaching online, just because it was a lot that we unpacked last week that really frames up the book of Matthew as a whole and sort of unpacks some of the major themes in the book. But in short, the, the major theme that we unpacked in the book of Matthew last week was something that Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is other language for it. And we said last week that the kingdom of God is a way of describing sort of God's rule and God's reign. Or put even simpler than that, it is God's way of doing things in the world. That's what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. God's way of going about things in the world. The central claim of the book of Matthew is that the long-awaited king of the world has arrived on the scene and that he has brought with him a distinct way of doing things around him. And in today's passage, we finally get to meet this long-awaited king. Believe it or not, as much as we covered last Sunday in the teaching, there is one important thing that we did not get into, and that was Jesus himself. We heard John the Baptist talk about Jesus, but in the story, we have not yet met Jesus in flesh and blood. Today, in our passage, we meet him finally. And as we do, I want you to pay really careful attention to how Matthew, the author, chooses to introduce this character of Jesus. Because I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but the way that a character gets introduced into a storyline usually tells us a lot about who that character is and what they're like. Just as a few examples, think of the character Walter White's introduction into the opening scene of the hit show Breaking Bad. There's already chuckles, which tells me you know the scene that I'm talking about. So in the opening scene of Breaking Bad, we see Walter White frantically making a getaway in the RV that they had been cooking crystal meth in with a a pair of cartel members who are dead sliding around in the back of the RV, and Walter White is wearing nothing but a gas mask and whitey tidies. That's the opening scene of the show. And if you know anything about Breaking Bad, that tells us a lot about Walter White's character, believe it or not. There's a lot of things that that alludes to about who he is and what type of person he is. Or, uh, on a lighter note, if you watch the show Schitt's Creek, anybody a fan of that show? So think about the opening scene of that show where we meet the matriarch of the family, Moira. And the scene opens and she's sitting on the floor weeping as she has to decide which of her possessions to pack into suitcases as they're being evacuated from their home. 
That tells us a lot about who she is in the storyline. Or let's go with a classic. There's even Simba in The Lion King, which is either a few years old or like two decades old, depending on your age in the room, right? There's actually two of them, believe it or not. But in the first scene of the movie Lion King, Simba is hoisted up as the future king of the Pride Lands, and then in the next scene, we find him singing the song, I just can't wait to be what? King, which is now stuck in your head for the rest of this morning. I'm sorry about that. But that tells us a lot about Simba's character in the movie, right? Generally speaking, what good storytelling does is that it strategically orchestrates a character's first appearance in the story to try to tell you as much as it can about who that character is and what they're like. And the book of Matthew is great storytelling. Now, it's not only great storytelling, it's also scripture, right? It's inspired by God, but it is great storytelling. So Matthew, the author, did not choose the two stories that we are about to read about Jesus at random in order to introduce us to Jesus, not at all. He chooses these two events to introduce Jesus into the story because there are things in them that tell us so much about who Jesus is and what type of character he is in the story and what he came to do in the story of the Bible. These things are meant to tell us about Jesus' identity, to tell us about who he is. So we've already picked up on the fact in the book of Matthew that Jesus is indeed the king that everyone has been waiting for. But I think that prompts the question for us, what kind of king is he? That's a very important question to ask if you're gonna be living under the rule of any king, right? Is what type of king is it that I'm living under? And Matthew's answer in short, and we're gonna spend the rest of our time unpacking this, Matthew's answer is that Jesus is a very different kind of king. Jesus is a different kind of king. And he's going to get into all of that today and what it means by way of two stories, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look and see what Matthew wants to show us about the type of king that Jesus is. Matthew chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So here we are just a sentence into Jesus' introduction, and already there's a twist in the story. Because if you remember from last week's passage, this guy in the story named John the Baptist has just finished describing for us what this future king is going to be like. And according to what John said, this king was going to come in power. He was going to lay the axe to the root of the tree. He was going to come with a winnowing fork in his hand. He was going to throw the chaff into unquenchable fire. That is some powerful language to introduce a character in the story. In John's mind, this king, when he comes, was going to be someone to be reckoned with. He was going to make John himself look like a mere blip on the radar because of how thunderous his arrival onto the scene was going to be. But then today, beginning in verse 13, we are primed and ready for this mighty king to show up, and he shows up, and the first thing that happens is that he asks John to baptize him. This king, in a way, submits himself to the one he was supposed to be greater than, 
that's at least a little bit anticlimactic, right? I mean, the hope is that Jesus would come and be bigger and, and better and more powerful than John, and in many ways he is, but it sure doesn't read that way in this part of the story. It reads like somebody made a mistake, right? Namely, John. Like things are not playing out the way that they were supposed to play out. In fact, I think John also feels that way about it to some degree. Look at his response to Jesus' request in verse 14 of our passage. It says, John would have prevented this from happening, saying, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? In other words, he's going, Jesus, this is precisely backwards from how it was supposed to work. You were meant to come in power, not in weakness. You were meant to come in dominance, not in submission. Why in the world would you, Jesus, need to be baptized by me? That doesn't make any sense at all. That's not what I told all these people was going to happen. But, verse 15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. So what does that statement mean from Jesus? These are the first words from Jesus in the story. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills all righteousness? And specifically, what does it mean that Jesus being baptized by John fulfills all righteousness? Because we, we learned last week in last week's teaching that baptism is a sign of repentance, right? It's a symbol of repentance. So when you get baptized, what you're saying is that you're turning from an old sinful way of life and way of thinking, and, and you're returning, you're repenting to a new life-giving way of thinking and living. So why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? He doesn't have any sin that he needs to repent of in the story. Why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? I think this is our first clue into the different type of king that Jesus came to be. In this interaction with John, we begin to see that Jesus is a king, yes, but that he has also come as a servant. He has arrived on the scene with a striking amount of humility and deference to, to God the Father who sent him, but also in many ways, humility towards those around him, deference towards those around him. Jesus will say later on in the Gospels that he came not to be served, but to serve. I think that is a helpful way of summarizing his posture during his time on earth. Jesus came in order to serve. And just so you know, that word serve is much softer in English than it was back then. The word serve in the Bible, as Jesus uses it, was the language of a slave who waited on tables at his master's events. That's the posture that Jesus says he is going to take towards other people and towards his mission during his time on earth. So just to try and help illustrate what that means exactly. Uh, so probably about 10 years ago, uh, I attended a pastor's conference in Atlanta and at this conference, about 30 of us got this incredible opportunity to go to a private luncheon of sorts with one of the conference main stage presenters. Pretty cool opportunity for us to have. In our case, the lunch that we had was with a guy named Francis Chan. Probably a lot of you guys have heard of him. Popular speaker, author, church leader. He's pretty famous, I guess you would say, especially in like the Christian realm of things. 
But when the lunch was over, because he was so well-known, pretty much every pastor in this room of like 30 people, every single pastor in the room, as soon as the lunch was over, they made a beeline to go talk to Francis Chan and like take a selfie with him, talk to him. I don't know what you do when you meet Christian celebrities, like get them to sign your Bible or something. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, But whatever it was, they were excited about it, right? So they just... All 30 of these pastors just make a beeline to go talk to Francis Chan. They leave their trash and lunch back on the table behind them. And I would love to tell you that because I'm so much more mature than the other pastors in the room, I did not go and talk to Francis Chan, but I cannot tell you that, in fact. So I was also in the line to talk to Francis Chan. And as I was in line, I started noticing out of the corner of my eye that there was a a slightly older gentleman in a standard Chick-fil-A employee's uniform who was going around and picking up all the trash that was left behind on the tables while these pastors went up to talk to Francis. And it kind of struck me as weird because it wasn't a Chick-fil-A luncheon. Like, we hadn't eaten Chick-fil-A, so I was like, "Why, why is this guy picking up all the trash for everybody? But I didn't think much more about it. But as I was walking out of the room, after I got to talk to Francis Chan, I did not get a selfie Otherwise, I could prove to you guys that I met Francis Chan today, but I sadly did not. Um, And as I was walking out of the room, I I just happened to look at this employee, this Chick-fil-A employee who had been picking up everybody's trash. I looked at his name tag. And on his name tag, just a standard Chick-fil-A name tag, like anybody else that works at Chick-fil-A, said, Dan Cathy, CEO. The guy that had been picking up everybody's trash at this luncheon was the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Just in case you're wondering, the the last time I checked online, his net worth is somewhere around $7 billion. Christians eat a lot of chicken at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A was actually one of the primary sponsors of the conference that we were at. They had given probably tens of thousands of dollars to make this conference Happen. So, so Dan Cathy was not there at the luncheon because his company catered it or, or because he was being paid to clean up after this luncheon. He was there because he was a special guest of the conference. If anybody deserved to be hanging out and chumming it up with Francis Chan, it was Dan Cathy, right? And instead, he chose to go around everybody's table and pick up trash while everyone else went and talked to Francis Chan. And I bring that up because it's one of the best pictures I can think of, of where a person had the status and position and authority to not be a servant and chose to take the posture of a servant anyway. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he was in his very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So Jesus is and would be a king, yes, but he would also be a servant. That's part of who he was. And that is why it fulfills all righteousness for him to be baptized by John. It's it's the first marker of the humble servant posture that Jesus will carry with him his entire life all the way to the cross. And I think what we read next in our passage actually confirms all of that. So take a look with me at verse 16 real quick. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, these words in the story spoken over Jesus are are obviously meant to read to us as some incredible, awe-inspiring, empowering words that were spoken over him, to be sure. But just like many other things in the book of Matthew and in the New Testament as a whole, there's even more to what's happening than just that. These words spoken over Jesus at this point in the story are actually lifted directly from the book of Isaiah, where they describe a figure in the Bible called the servant of the Lord. So Jesus has shown that he is the servant of the Lord by by submitting himself to John's baptism, and now the Father confirms that identity of servant by speaking these words over Jesus when he comes up out of the water. God the Father confirms at this point, this is the Messiah, this is the King, and also this is my servant. He is a king, yes, but he is a servant king. So that's scene one of our passage. That's what happens first. Scene two takes place in chapter four of our passage. What we're about to read next is what is commonly called the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And while it might seem to a lot of us like it's a completely different passage than the one we just read about Jesus' baptism, it actually isn't. So some of you may know this, some of you may not, but the verse and chapter divisions in the Bible were actually added later. They are not inspired. They're not perfect, okay? So it's not like Matthew was sitting down to write his New Testament book and going, now let's see, what do I want chapter 4 to say? What do I want chapter 4 to be about? That's not how the Bible was written. The numbering, the chapters and verse numbers were added later just for us to be able to reference parts of our Bible more easily. So even though we're about to start a new chapter in the book of Matthew, that does not mean we're on to a different topic. In fact, I think there are actually quite a few reasons that we should group these two stories together, the story of Jesus' baptism and his temptations. I'll give you just one reason for now, and then we'll talk about another one a little bit later. So at the end of chapter 3, God the Father has just declared over Jesus, this is my beloved what? You remember? This is my beloved son, Now, if you look down at chapter 4, verse 3, what is the very first thing that Satan says to Jesus? He says, if you really are the what? Son of God. So the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness is actually picking up right where the story of his baptism left off. Satan is about to test, in other words, the very thing that Jesus has just had spoken over him by the Father. So Jesus has demonstrated his identity as the servant of God. The Father has spoken over him and confirmed his identity as the servant of God. And now the enemy, Satan, is going to test whether or not he really is the servant of God. Does that make sense? You see that sequence of events in the story. So do your best as we read this not to think of these as two separate stories in the Bible, but instead as back-to-back events in the Bible that together have something to teach us about the type of servant king that Jesus came to be. So knowing that, let's take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
So before we move on to the rest of this story, we probably need to talk for just a moment about the mention of Satan or the devil in the Bible. Because I think for so many of us as modern Americans, the the idea of this sort of personified evil feels a little mystical and superstitious and therefore feels a little bit unbelievable, at least to a lot of us. Now, I think some of that is because our perception of Satan has often been very shaped by pop culture, so movies and TV and cartoons and all of that, such that when many of us hear Satan mentioned in the scriptures, our minds immediately conjure up some sort of like red creature with horns coming out of his head and carrying a pitchfork, sort of like Will Ferrell on SNL back in the day, if anybody's old enough to remember that particular character. I think a lot of us picture that sort of figure. Or, or bare minimum, we imagine some sort of like overly sinister, shadowy-looking figure. That's who we picture Satan to be in the story of the Bible. But truth be told, we are actually never given a visual description in the Bible of what Satan looks like. Perhaps because it's not relevant, or maybe because his appearance was actually nothing unusual when he showed up. I mean, think about it. If he was some sort of obviously sinister-looking figure in the Bible, it seems like the authors of the Bible would have just been like, hey, look out for the guy that looks really evil and don't listen to him, right? Instead, in the Bible, the, the Scriptures just assume Satan's presence in the world. And at times, they will go out of their way to say that Satan is cunning and crafty and deceitful. So I think if that tells us anything about Satan, it's that his, theme, his schemes are probably far less obvious than we would expect, right? So, so, to, be, so to be honest, it, it probably works to his advantage that many of us think his presence and his existence is silly and superstitious because that means he gets to carry on completely undetected as he effectively burns our lives to the ground. But all that said, here we read that Jesus is led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, really quickly, let me try and clarify something about that word tempt in the Bible. So probably a better way to translate that word is that Jesus was tested by the devil. In fact, in other places in the Bible, this same word here is actually translated as to test. And the reason I clarify that is because we generally use the word tempt when we describe the desire to do something bad, right? So I, I don't know that any of us would say, I'm just really tempted to let that person in front of me in traffic. That's not how we use the word. I, we wouldn't say, I'm just really tempted to bake that person a cake and take it over to their house. Because that's not how we think about that word at all. We don't use the word tempt that way. We use it to describe bad or evil desires. And I think it's worth noting that here in the story, Satan doesn't necessarily tempt Jesus to do bad things, at least not as we think of it. The first temptation is for Jesus to turn stones into bread. Is there any command in the Bible against turning stones into bread? No. So so it's not so much that Satan is trying to get Jesus to do something bad, per se, as it is Satan is attempting to divert Jesus off of his God-ordained mission, his mission to be a servant king to the world. 
So I think the better word here in this passage is that Jesus was being tested because a test is neutral. Think about tests that you take in school. The result of a test can be good or it can be bad because the only goal of a test is to reveal the character of the one taking the test. If you studied well, you get a good grade on the test. If you didn't study well, you get a bad grade on the test. At least in theory, that's the way it works, right? So what's happening here, I think, is a little bit deeper than just Satan attempting to get Jesus to do something bad. It's actually that he is testing the true character of Jesus. Who Jesus really is is being tested and revealed by what happens here in the story. It's designed to show us and confirm what type of king and what type of son and what type of servant Jesus truly is. So with that in mind, let's read the account of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. I'm just gonna read this all the way through to the end all at once, then we'll go back and talk a little bit more in detail. So pick it up with me in verse two of chapter four. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he, that's Jesus, was hungry. And the tempter, or the tester, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, there's our phrase, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, so there are three different tests in the story, three different pitches that Satan makes to Jesus. And, and while they all might seem a little bit different, and they definitely all seem a little bit bizarre to us, I think there's actually a common thread that runs through each of these tests. So remember, in the story, Jesus has just been declared to be the Son of God following his baptism. And Satan never directly challenges that status. In fact, he assumes it in his first two temptations. His pitch, Satan's pitch to Jesus is simply this. Jesus, use your sonship to your own advantage. Use your status, Jesus, as the Son of God in self-serving ways instead of in servant-minded ways. That's what Satan wants to get Jesus to do at the end of the day. So each one of the tests kind of sound like this. He says, Jesus, you're hungry, right? So, so use your status as God's Son to turn these stones into bread because there's no reason for the Son of God in that mighty of a position to go hungry when he doesn't have to go hungry. So just use your status as God's son and take care of the problem, Jesus. And the next one, he says, Jesus, things in the kingdom are all about you, the king, right? So throw yourself down from the temple for no apparent reason and have the angels rescue you. Surely God would rescue you, his, 
his highly privileged son, right? Make it all about you. And finally, the last one, Jesus, you have come to be king of the world, right? So what if I told you you could become king of the world and not have to suffer on the cross at all to make that happen? Use your sonship, use your status as God's son to just take the easy way out. All you have to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give up everything right now. Do you see the pattern in these tests? He wants to try to get Jesus to use his status as God's son in ways that contradict the mission that God has given Jesus to do, and therefore contrary to the type of king that Jesus came to be. So I think a lot of people think that Satan's objective in the world is like to get people really involved in things like tarot cards and Ouija boards, or to like go get their fortune read or something like that. Or maybe back in the day it was to try to get people to listen to hair metal because everybody knows if you play hair metal backwards it like screams satanic messages over you. Like that was just like common knowledge back in the day somehow, even though it wasn't true. It's common knowledge. I think a lot of people think that those are the type of things that Satan is up to in the world, that that's what he's trying to get people involved in. And listen, I'm not saying Satan can't be involved in any of those things. Sometimes he is, to be sure. For instance, you don't even have to play hair metal backwards to know that Satan is involved with it. You just know that because it's bad music, right? So it's highly possible that that could be what Satan is up to in the world. Sometimes he's involved in those sort of things, to be sure. But here's my point from the story. It's worth noting that here in Satan's temptation of Jesus... Satan's strategy is far more ordinary than any of those things. It's far less ominous than any of those things. Here in the story, part of Satan's method is just to get Jesus to be selfish and self-oriented in how he goes about life. He tries to get Jesus to orient everything in his life and everything in the kingdom around Jesus' own immediate needs and comforts. And I would bet that this is another strategy Satan loves to use on us. To try and get us to orient everything and everyone in our world around ourselves. Satan would love few things more than for us to spend the majority of our time insisting that everyone else meet our needs and cater to our preferences. So when you operate, for instance, as if your spouse or your roommates are simply there to make life easier and more ideal for you. That could be demonic. When you settle into a low-grade frustration that your friends are not precisely the type of friends that you think they should be at all times, that could be demonic. When you ghost your life group or your small group or your church because they didn't meet your spiritual needs the way that you thought they should meet them, that could be demonic. And at the very least, when our lives are marked by consistent self-orientation, you can be certain that Satan is very, very happy with that scenario. And getting back to the story, it makes sense that Satan would try to get Jesus to operate in that way. Because after all, in most kingdoms at this time, kings were all about self-orientation, 
right? They, they had statues of themselves put up. They had people bow down to them as gods. They had parades scheduled to celebrate their own importance. Kings at this time were very good at making much of themselves. Many kingdoms and governments today still are. At this moment, we have a president who cannot seem to stop talking about how good of a person he is and how great of a president he is. And listen, that's not an endorsement or a criticism. That's an observation. And so you can email me about it, but if you email me about it, I'm just going to respond with a link to his Twitter feed and be like, good luck. This is how kingdoms of this world operate back then and today is that they are all about self-orientation. They're all about organizing everything in our world, everything in life around our own immediate needs and comfort and pride. That is how kingdoms of the world function. Jesus, however, is a different kind of king. He is a king whose mission it is to give up everything, including his own life, to do what the Father sent him to do. That's how Jesus becomes king. Now, believe it or not, that's only one layer to what's happening in this passage. There's actually a deeper layer to all of this as well. Now, don't panic. I know we've already been at this for a while. So the second layer is a lot quicker to unpack. But I do want to make sure that you see it. There's another layer to what's going on in this story. From the way Matthew tells this story in Matthew chapter 4, it is obvious that he is presenting it as a sort of retelling of the Old Testament story of Israel. So a lot of you probably already know this. There's a story in the book of Exodus about a time when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt, and then he led them through the desert. Desert can also be translated wilderness in that passage. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, sort of like Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel's time in the wilderness immediately followed them passing through the waters of the Red Sea, sort of like how Jesus just passed through the waters of baptism. What's even more interesting is that at several points in the Old Testament story of Israel, their nation is actually referred to as God's son, sort of like how Jesus was referred to that way in the story. You see, Israel was another son and another servant that was tested in the wilderness. But the main difference between these two stories, between the story of Jesus and the story of Israel, is that Israel failed their test. They came up wanting in the story. They were tested by being given limited food in the wilderness so that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone, but they failed that test by grumbling at God and accusing him of not caring about them. They were tested by being in the wilderness with very little to drink, and they failed by turning around and testing God because of that. They were tested by being called to worship God and God alone in the wilderness, but they failed that test by setting up other gods to worship while they were there. So Matthew, the author, is portraying Jesus as the one who came to do what Israel failed to do. He came to be what Israel had failed to be. He came to pass the test that they failed. And in doing that, he once again shows us that Jesus is the true son and servant of God. 
God has now used this test put forward by Satan to verify what he spoke over Jesus after his baptism. Jesus is the true son of God as well as the servant king. And I think that's precisely where all of this story connects to you and I today. You see, it's not just that Israel failed the test, we failed it. We are Israel in so many different ways. We are Israel when we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are Israel when we put God to the test and worship other things instead of God as gods in our life, instead of him. We are Israel when we grumble to God about all the ways that he hasn't provided for us in the precise ways that we think we should be provided for. And we are Israel when we choose to orient everything in the world around us and our needs. So the truth is that we too needed someone to come and succeed where we failed. We need the true son of God to come and be the one in whom God is pleased because that tends not to be true of us an awful lot of the time. And the message of the cross is that Jesus came to do precisely that for us, not just for Israel, but for us. He didn't just come to show us how to live. Jesus came to live in our place, to live the life that we couldn't, to die the death that we should have died, and to hand us in return life. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate act of servanthood that Jesus came to live out was his death. So did you notice how in those last couple verses of the passage, Jesus reacts way more passionately to the last temptation than he did to the first two? So the first two times when Satan sort of makes his pitch, Jesus just quotes scripture and moves on, right? But in the third test, before he cites scripture, Jesus actually says emphatically, be gone from me, Satan, exclamation point. So why is Jesus' response the last time around different from the first two times? What about that third and final test was so repulsive to Jesus that he would respond that way? My take on it is that in his final test, in the third test, Satan is trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Satan knows that if Jesus goes to the cross, it's all over. So he tries to give Jesus an easy way out. He tries to give Jesus an easier way to win. And to that offer, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. Because the thing that Jesus came to do that we could not do, the thing that he came to succeed in that we could not succeed in is completed in him going to the cross for us. In him dying a sinner's death so that we could be given a savior's life. And the one thing that is utterly repulsive to Jesus is not going to the cross for his people. He will not allow himself to even stomach that possibility of not giving his life. Jesus is our suffering servant king. So, a question that gets, gets asked a lot around evangelicalism is the question, what would Jesus do, 
We tend to love that question, right? I mean, we made bracelets out of it at one point. We love that question, what would Jesus do? And, and to be honest, I think that's a massively important question for us to ask. We are Jesus' disciples, which means we ultimately want to become like him. We want to live like him. So it makes sense that we would ask the question often, what would Jesus do in this type of scenario? And in passages like this one, the one that we read today, that would look like us asking, what does Jesus' temptation tell me about how I fight temptation, Right? That's what that version of that question is. And like I said, I think that's a really helpful question to ask, to be sure. But I also think it is essential that we first ask a different question of stories like these. And that question is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do for us? What did Jesus accomplish that only he could accomplish? What did he succeed in that without him, we couldn't succeed in? You see, before Jesus came to show us what to do, he came to live in our place. So let's learn from Jesus how to live, absolutely. Let's learn from Jesus how to live and how to love people and how to serve people and how to sacrifice for people and how to fight temptation. Let's learn all of those things from Jesus' life as we go through the book of Matthew. All of that is good and needed. But just so we know, the ability to imitate him in all of those different facets of life the ability comes from receiving his life and his indwelling spirit through what he accomplished on the cross. That's where it has to start, otherwise all of this will seem impossible to us. But when we realize that Jesus came to be something for us, not just to come as our example, but when Jesus came to be something for us, he opens the way to us living like he lived. But we do it through the power of the cross and his Holy Spirit within us. And only through that do we learn how to be the type of kingdom people that Jesus designed us to be. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you for the book of Matthew. God, for the things that were accomplished on our behalf by our servant king. God, my prayer is that as we um, go through the coming weeks and months and years in this book, that we wouldn't just see it as a collection of some interesting stories about a guy named Jesus. but that we would see it, as so many believers have said, as our only hope in life and death. God, if we see your son, Jesus, as um, just a good guy, a clever teacher, somebody who had some interesting things to say about loving your enemy or whatever it is. God, my fear is that we would miss the entirety of what the book of Matthew is saying. 
which is that your son is not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just an interesting rabbi. He is the Lord and King of the universe. And what he's inviting us into is being a part of that kingdom, being a part of delivering his good news to a world that desperately needs it. And so God, maybe there's people here this morning that just need to wrestle with how they think of Jesus, who they think he is. There's no doubt in my mind that you wrote these two stories, you put these two stories where they are in these passages so that we might discover the true identity of Jesus. And so God, I pray that through the words we talked about this morning, through other words in the scriptures that that you would show some people who your son Jesus is for the very first time. Their lives would be changed by it. God, we know that you have that ability. We've seen it in so many of our lives and we just ask for more of it this morning that you would, you would use the words of your scriptures through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about life in people in this room. And God, for all of us, would you help us to continually set and reset on the reality of who Jesus is and was. God, would you help that to shape our lives in all sorts of tangible, noticeable ways. And would you use that to lead more and more people towards you and your kingdom. God, we ask this in your name, for your glory. Amen.